Hi, everybody. Fancy meeting you here. This is Sean. And this is episode 50 of, well, the apparently now annual Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. And uh, we're going to talk about Baby Pac-Man this time. Yeah, Baby Pac-Man. Thank you for joining me. So glad you could be here. So glad I could be here. So glad I have reason to do this episode. And I really hope that I have reason to do more very soon. Wow, so it's been over a year since the last episode. Well, in that time, things have happened, obviously. Uh, those of you who don't listen to any of my other podcasts, uh, the big news for me was that my wife and I adopted a beagle back in July of 2019. Her name is Lola. Yeah, shut up with the Kinks and Barry Manilow references. I've heard enough of it uh, in the first few hours that Lola was in our care. <laughs> But she's a wonderful puppy. Uh, she's f just turned four, actually, this past Valentine's Day. Um, oh, yeah, and there's a little thing going on called a pandemic. <laughs> so I've been stuck working at home for three months. Uh, yeah, I was, I'm fortunate enough that my job can be done from home. And I learned something that they don't teach you in programming school. And that is that when people are stuck at home, they tend to order stuff online more. And because I work on an ordering site, um, my job has been pretty secure. <laughs> so I guess that's a, si that's a positive side effect of this, uh, well, honestly terrible thing that's going on, really. But I really don't know what else to say. Again, thank you for, for tuning in. Thank you for downloading this episode. And I hope it's not this long again before you download another one, before you have a reason to download another one. But... I'm just going to shut up right now and get right into the whole purpose of this episode. And that is the wonder that is the homebrew version of Baby Pac-Man for the Atari 7800, courtesy of the great Bob DiCrescenzo and the great Kurt, oh, am I going to pronounce this wrong? Wallach, or is it Volach? I don't know, Kurt, I sincerely apologize if I'm saying it wrong, but know that I'm in awe of your skills, and of course, I'm in awe of Bob's skills. So let's get right into Baby Pac-Man. As I'm sure you already know and long have known, Baby Pac-Man is a video game pinball hybrid. It was made by Bally Manufacturing Corporation's pinball division. So as far as Bally is concerned, Baby Pac-Man is a pinball game first, video game second. Now the arcade cabinet was kind of interesting because you think pinball machine, you think this long, heavy, angled thing with a backboard on it. Well, the thing is, the Baby Pac-Man machine isn't much bigger than a standard arcade video game. The control panel juts out a little bit to make room for a long enough pinball table. The control panel is kind of like any other Pac-Man game. You have a joystick in the middle, and kind of like Super Pac-Man and Pac-N-Pow, there is a button on the left and a button on the right, and those are flipper buttons. And on the side of the cabinet, you also have flipper buttons in the event that you want to play the pinball portion as if you were playing just any other pinball table. Now, according to Bally's own documentation, the game was released on October 11th, 1982, just a little over a week after I celebrated my eighth birthday. 
but I question that because there was a promotional flyer that indicated that it made its debut at the AMOA show on November 18th that year. Specifically, it says, and I quote, Born November 18th at the AMOA show. Come see him during your Ballyhoo Distributor's regular visiting hours. See what they did there? (laughs) If that date is correct, then that makes Baby Pac-Man the third Pac-Man arcade video game released just in 1982. In the U.S., it came out 10 days after Super Pac-Man, again, if that date is correct. And this wasn't the first Pac-Man pinball game either. That honor goes to Mr. and Mrs. Pac-Man, which was released May 1st, 1982. And that makes Baby Pac-Man the fourth Pac-Man arcade game of any kind that was released in the arcades just in the year 1982. Uh, The other one, of course, being Pac-Man Plus. Claude Fernandez designed Baby Pac-Man and Margaret Hudson did the artwork. All of their credits on ArcadeHistory.com are for pinball machines, so I don't know if they had anything to do with the video game portion. Both Claude Fernandez and Margaret Hudson also worked on Skateball and Spectrum, which are both by Bally, and Torpedo Alley by Data East. Other titles that Margaret Hudson worked on included 8-Ball. If you heard episode number 25 covering Astro Blaster, then you know that Henry Winkler was possibly the first celebrity to allow his likeness to be used on a video game, and that was Fonz, a reissue of Sega's motocross video game. Well, the claim to fame of uh, 8-Ball is that that pinball game also used the likeness of Henry Winkler as the Fonz, Uh, except they didn't have his permission this time. But Margaret Hudson also worked on Family Guy, Robocop, and Twilight Zone. She also did the artwork for Granny and the Gators, which was Bally's second pinball video game hybrid, and that was released in 1983. And by the way, if my sources are correct, neither Baby Pac-Man nor Granny and the Gators is the first pinball video game hybrid. That recognition goes to Gottlieb's Caveman, and that predated Baby Pac-Man by at least a month. Uh, Anybody know if there was another that might have predated Caveman? Let me know. Homebrew78 at fab4it.com. And Baby Pac-Man was yet another Pac-Man sequel that was not authorized by Namco. But unlike other Pac-Man sequels that were basically hacked versions of the original Pac-Man, uh, specifically Ms. Pac-Man, Exciting New Pac-Man Plus, and 1983's Junior Pac-Man, Baby Pac-Man was not derived from any of the previous Pac-Man games. It was a brand new creation from the ground up. And you can kind of tell because the character sprites in Baby Pac-Man look virtually nothing like those in the other Pac-Man games, especially the eyes. In the other Pac-Man games, the monster's eyes have whites and irises, but their eyes in Baby Pac-Man are just solid black, meaning you can't tell what direction they're looking, and ergo, you don't know where they're about to go, which adds a pretty significant challenge to the video gameplay. And in fact, let's talk about the gameplay right now. When you begin Baby Pac-Man, the game starts in the maze portion, the video game. Just as with most Pac-Man variants, Baby Pac-Man is in a maze and must eat all the dots in the maze while avoiding four monsters who start out in a pen in the middle of the screen. This time, the monsters don't appear to have been given any names, and they don't have any set behavior patterns, really. They just kind of generally 
go in the direction of baby Pac-Man. The monsters don't have any special particular habits, and they might even double back on their own paths. There are some speed differences with the monsters, though. The red one moves a bit faster than baby Pac-Man, the pink monster slower, and the green and blue monsters are the same speed as baby Pac-Man. And, by the way, in the whole monsters versus ghosts debate, I lean toward monsters. They're monsters. And this time, I know I'm right. The advertising that Bally Midway distributed called them monsters. But anyway, there is an escape tunnel on either side of the screen, just as with previous Pac-Man games, but they behave slightly differently. In most Pac-Man games, when you enter the tunnel, the monsters slow down. And that's true with Baby Pac-Man as well. But Baby Pac-Man can earn some power-ups that make him go faster during the tunnel, and I'll get to that a little bit later. One big thing you may have noticed I haven't mentioned yet. Energizers. That's because there are none. Well, at least not in the beginning. You actually have to earn energizers by playing pinball. In fact, just about all of the typical Pac-Man power-ups are the result of your pinball skills. The one exception is the bonus prize, referred to by the advertising flyers as fruits. And they actually are all fruits as well, by the way, so I may just call them fruits. Just as in the other Pac-Man games, fruits will appear twice per round. But unlike with the other Pac-Man games, it does not appear that the fruits in Baby Pac-Man are triggered by eating a certain number of dots. I think that there's a certain amount of time that passes. I haven't figured out what time that is. The first fruit is a cherry, and it will stay a cherry unless you earn upgrades in the pinball table. And speaking of which, why don't I talk about the pinball table? To play pinball... Baby Pac-Man must exit the maze through one of two exits located at the bottom of the maze. When the game changes focus to pinball, the pinball is launched automatically. You don't pull a plunger or anything. The board has pretty much what you'd expect from any other pinball machine. Rollovers, spinners, flippers, bumpers, and drop targets. At the top of the pinball board and in the middle are five drop targets. Two yellow ones on the left, two yellow ones on the right, and a blue one in the middle. In front of the yellow drop targets are columns of letters that spell Pac-Man, no hyphen, and each of those letters is backlit. And below each Pac-Man column are the numbers 1 through 4. So you'll have the first column says Pac-Man and then 1, second column says Pac-Man, then 2, etc. Every time you hit a yellow drop target, a new letter lights up in front of that drop target. If you light up an entire Pac-Man column, the number in that column lights up and you earn an Energizer. And each column corresponds to a specific Energizer. The leftmost drop target and Pac-Man column corresponds to the Energizer near the top left corner of the maze. The next one to the right corresponds to the bottom left corner, then the first of the rightmost drop targets corresponds to the bottom right corner of the maze, and the drop target all the way in the right corresponds to the top right corner. The blue drop target in the middle has a column of five arrows pointing to it. Every time you hit the blue drop target, one of the arrows lights up. And if you light up all five arrows, then the next time you hit the blue drop target, a Pac-Man symbol between the two flippers lights up, and above that symbol is the phrase, play again. When that's lit up, it means you've just earned an extra baby Pac-Man. You can only earn one extra baby Pac-Man for each round of pinball that you play. You can't earn multiple baby Pac-Man... Pac-Men? Pac... Ba hmm. You can't earn multiple extra lives in one swipe at the pinball table. Let's just leave it at that, okay? 
on the left and right of the pinball table are small triangular bumper islands, if you will. Between those islands and the outer lanes that say fruits and bananas are inner lanes that correspond with the Pac-Man light columns. Now, this is where things get a little bit confusing. It's probably easier done than said in terms of explaining this, but the inner lane on the left corresponds to the two left Pac-Man light columns, and the inner lane on the right corresponds to the Pac-Man light columns that are on the right. Those inner lanes kind of act as balancers for the Pac-Man lights. If you roll the ball through, say, the inner lane on the left, then the programming is going to look at the Pac-Man light columns on the outer left and the inner left. If, say, the outer left column has more letters lit up than the inner left column does, then it lights up the same number of letters on the inner left column. So that way, both of the left columns have the same number of letters lit up. If both columns already have an equal number of letters lit up, then the inner lane rollover actually lights up another one in both of those lanes. Near the top of the pinball table on either side, near where the spinners are, there is a little drop zone. A saucer is the term. The saucers have actions similar to the lanes on either side. If you get the ball into the saucer on the left, a letter in the word fruits lights up. If you get the ball into the saucer on the right, then a letter in the word tunnel lights up. If the ball lands in the left saucer and energizer number one or number two is lit, then you're taken back to the maze portion of the game, entering through the lower left tunnel. That tunnel is going to stay unlocked so you can go back in it if you want to, but the right tunnel is blocked off. Conversely, if the ball lands on the saucer on the right and energizer three or four is lit up, you return to the maze with baby Pac-Man entering the lower right tunnel, keeping the left tunnel blocked off. If you do re-enter the pinball table after that point, a cut screen will show baby Pac-Man going down a slide called a Pac-Scalator back to the pinball table. At the very top of the pinball table, you'll see a little curved tunnel with a pinball inside it. You can actually knock that pinball from one side to the other with your active pinball. Every time you knock that locked pinball to the other side, you earn an energizer. There are two outer lanes with rollovers at the end, and they're there for your upgrades. On the outer lane on the left, you'll see the letters F-R-U-I-T-S. Every time a ball goes into the rollover in that lane, one of the letters in fruits lights up, and every time you light up all of the letters of the word fruits, your fruit upgrades to the next bonus item. For example, if your current bonus item is cherries, then if you spell the word fruits in the pinball table, you get bumped up to strawberry next time. On the right side, you see the word tunnel in the lane. And if the pinball goes over the tunnel rollover, then a letter in the word tunnel is lit up. And if you light up all of the letters in the word tunnel, then your speed when you go through the side tunnels in the maze speeds up. And it could get pretty freaking intensely fast, by the way. So watch out and make sure there isn't a monster at the other end of the tunnel or else you will crash right into it. The video game portion of Baby Pac-Man has three different mazes. Every time you clear a maze, it changes. The third maze is almost an exact duplicate of the maze from the original Pac-Man. From what I can tell, you get an extra life every time you clear a maze, starting with the third maze. I could be wrong about that. So let's talk about scoring points. I think I got all the possible ways to score points covered. So let's talk about the video game portion first. In the maze, the scoring follows the same pattern as Pac-Man, except multiplied by 10. 
Dots are worth 100 points each, Energizers are worth 500 points, and if you eat the monsters, the first monster you eat after you eat one Energizer is worth 2,000 points, the second is worth 4,000, then 8,000, and then 16,000. And the bonus prizes follow the same scoring pattern as with the original Pac-Man, but also multiplied by 10. The first bonus prize is a pair of cherries. You eat a pair of cherries, you get 1,000 points. Strawberry, 3,000 points. Peach, 5,000 points. Apple, 7,000 points. Pear, 10,000 points. Orange, 20,000 points. Watermelon, 30,000 points. And Banana, 50,000 points. If you clear a maze, you get a 10,000 point bonus. And every maze you clear after that, you get an additional 10,000 points. So if you clear the second maze, you get a bonus of 20,000. The third maze, you get a bonus of 30,000. The fourth maze, you get a bonus of 40,000, etc. So you can see that if you're very careful, you can rack up a six-digit score really easily in Baby Pac-Man. Now, as for the pinball table, hitting a bumper will get you 10 points. Going through a spinner, you get 100 points every time the spinner rotates. Rollovers, drop targets, and saucers are all worth 500 points. And knocking that locked pinball at the top of the screen from one side of the arch to the other will get you 1,000 points. Now, Baby Pac-Man's gender is often subject for debate. Now, you already heard me read something from Bally's Marketing that refers to Baby Pac-Man as a male. Other marketing materials from Bally say, and I quote, Watch Mr. and Mrs. Pac-Man beam with pride as our new Baby Pac-Man follows in his parents' dot-chomping footsteps. While many would never consider it Pac-Man canon, in the Saturday morning Hanna-Barbera Pac-Man cartoon, Pac-Baby is a boy. However, in the same marketing material, Baby Pac-Man wears a pink bow and a pink bonnet. And until probably the last few years, parents tended to be very strict in using pink to identify baby girls and pale blue to identify baby boys. And just to add to the confusion, Baby Pac-Man wears a blue bonnet on the marquee of the arcade game, but a pink bonnet on the side art, and a pink bonnet in the attract screen. Also in the attract mode, there's a screen showing a pink bonneted baby Pac-Man playing with a yo-yo, a toy traditionally attributed to boys. But in the game Pac-Man 2, the new adventures on the Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis, the introductory animation shows us a character named Pac-Baby, described as, and I quote, the cute little tot with an appetite so big, even the ghosts are afraid to come near her. So in that game, which is sanctioned by Namco, the character is a girl. But then again, I don't know how much I could believe that because it calls the monsters ghosts. So, huh. oh, wow, that's, there's a can of worms right there. Um, anyway, to further complicate things, remember the third cutscene in Ms. Pac-Man? It's titled Junior. Technically, we don't know what Junior's gender really was in that game, but usually when people refer to someone as Junior, it tends to be a boy. But if you play well enough, you'll see the Junior cutscene multiple times. I think three times, maybe just two. I don't remember off the top of my head. But that implies that Mr. and Mrs. Pac-Man had at least two kids. What about Junior Pac-Man? Junior Pac-Man is supposed to be a boy, 
But is it the same character as Baby Pac-Man, but grown up a little? And is Pac-Baby necessarily the same character as Baby Pac-Man? My conclusion is, well, the marketing copywriters at Bally want Baby Pac-Man to be a boy, but Namco wants Pac-Baby to be a girl. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. Considering that Baby Pac-Man was not authorized by Namco, I, I, you know what? Screw it. Who cares? Just play the freaking game, all right? Believe it or not, the very first hint of Baby Pac-Man on the Atari 7800 came in January 2013. Uh, kind of. Atari age user Janes hacked Ms. Pac-Man to replace the mazes with the Baby Pac-Man mazes using Jay Veerer's Pac-Man construction set. This prompted other users over the next few months to refine his efforts and even sparked a little bit of discussion as to not so much whether someone could make Baby Pac-Man for the Atari 7800, but when it would actually happen. Why when? Well, because the Baby Pac-Man pinball table isn't very complicated in terms of how pinball tables are arranged. And ergo, theoretically, it wouldn't be difficult to at least visually reproduce it on an Atari 7800 screen. Now, let's skip ahead about five years. April 26, 2018. Atari 7800 homebrew hero Bob DiCrescenzo, also known as Pac-Man Plus, posted a video of a baby Pac-Man maze with a proof-of-concept animation. It was very rough, just the maze, the dots, and the character sprites. There was no pinball screen yet, and even then the collision detection hadn't yet been implemented. Bob used the 320B display mode and said that he had to use kangaroo mode. Now, I know precious little about Atari 7800 programming thanks to my brief foray into learning 7800 BASIC. But from what I understand, 320B mode allows for four colors, with one of the colors being transparent. I think kangaroo mode removes the transparent color and replaces it with the background color. This would mean that the characters would all have black rectangular borders, but would allow Bob to use more colors, although he wouldn't be able to make the monsters turn blue after Baby Pac-Man eats an Energizer. At this point, Bob was already thinking of programming two different artificial intelligence algorithms for the monster behavior. One option that matches that of the arcade version of Baby Pac-Man, and one option that mimics the behavior of the monsters in every other arcade Pac-Man variation. If you've never played Baby Pac-Man in the arcade, oh my goodness, the artificial intelligence patterns that they follow are totally different from what you're probably used to. The next day, Bob changed his mind, and he ended up not using kangaroo mode after all, which means that the black borders around the character sprites would be gone. To get the colors he needed for the monsters and a couple of the fruits, he used dithering. Uh, for those of you who don't know what dithering is, it's an optical trick that graphic designers use to make something look a certain color by using adjacent pixels of two or more other colors. For example, if you wanted purple, but purple wasn't available you would put a red pixel next to a blue pixel. At normal size, that sprite would look purple. However, Bob realized that he could get by without dithering, but as long as people didn't mind that the purple monster from the arcade game would be yellow in his homebrew version. 
and making the monster yellow instead of purple would have the bonus effect of having the monsters match the behaviors of the same colored monsters from the other games of the Pac-Man series if he were to implement switchable artificial intelligence. Even though the maze was rendered in 320B mode, the pinball table would likely be rendered in 160A mode, a lower resolution screen with four colors available. Now, that's the same screen resolution Bob used in other Pac-Man homebrews. Atari Age user Pac-Man Red, who helped with many other homebrews, would be designated to design the pinball screen. On May 3rd, Bob posted a video of his work in progress. With the transparent color on, the monster and the baby Pac-Man sprites now didn't have a black border, although there were a few random black pixels on the edges of the characters. The monsters were now red, teal, green, and gold. A couple of weeks later, Bob posted work-in-progress screenshots. The screenshots included the intro screen with baby Pac-Man playing with a yo-yo completely animated, the game configuration screen, and all of the mazes, including a version of the first maze in which the inner walls are invisible. Players who clear two complete rounds of all the mazes would see that invisible wall maze. At least at this point, the scared monsters, or that is, uh, the monsters how they appear after an energizer is eaten, they would be the same color as the blue monster. Still to be done, the monster's artificial intelligence, the pinball table, and the sounds, plus uh, solving an issue of slowdown once all the monsters leave their pen. And the game would be done in only 48 kilobytes. Also, no pokey chip is involved. Because the original arcade game had pretty primitive sounds, Bob felt that the built-in Tia chip was sufficient. Next in the work in progress was a post from Bob on May 17th, showing screenshots of the attract mode, including the animated baby Pac-Man with a yo-yo screen and brief on-screen instructions. The next day, Bob posted the first playable work in progress. Obviously, the pinball portion of the game hadn't been implemented yet. Also, because it was a very early point in the development, there were several caveats about the gameplay itself. The monster's arcade artificial intelligence didn't yet include monsters doubling back in their paths. The Remember Energizers option, uh, more about that later, wasn't functional yet, and the levels started immediately without delay. Bob emphasized that there was some really bad slowdown in certain points of the game, and he asked for help optimizing the code so this wouldn't be an issue. Atari Age user Nikon found that the problem happened when Baby Pac-Man and the monsters were all on the bottom half of the screen, but if they were all in the top half, the speed was fine. Bob suspected that that slowdown was because of the way the assembly language code, uh, which he borrowed from Ms. Pac-Man, divided by six. The next day, Bob figured out the division by six problem and found that it was indeed the cause of that slowdown. The next playable work in progress was posted on May 22nd, among the changes were a delay at the beginning of each maze, all game sounds for the maze, and an option for classic monster artificial intelligence, with the green monster corresponding to Pinky. The tunnel speed-up was implemented, but uh, it was kind of a moot point because you couldn't play the pinball part yet to gain that power-up, so you wouldn't have been able to see it. But Bob found a problem with it anyway. When moving through the tunnel at higher speeds, Baby Pac-Man would zoom by any monster that happened to be in the tunnel. While that sounds like a nice feature to have, it went against the intended behavior, so there was more work to be done there. 
At this point, there were 20 kilobytes of free space left to program the pinball portion, which could be a problem given all the rules that the pinball game has to follow. But the plan was going to kind of combine features of the Atari 2600 game video pinball and Bob's own 7800 homebrew crazy bricks. The controls would be based on the controls on video pinball, that is, fire to launch the ball, left and right for the respective flippers, up for both flippers, and joystick plus fire button to nudge. On May 24th, Bob mentioned that he finished the opening tune and progressively shortened the blue times, as it were, when an energizer is eaten as levels advance. He was still trying to figure out the tunnel problem, though. Bob posted his first attempt at recreating the pinball field on May 30th. At this point, the graphic only included the actual functionally required elements of the pinball table, with none of the additional cartoony artwork. He was thinking of not doing that at all, actually, to save space for other game elements. The next day, Atari Age user LeGeek posted tweaked versions of Bob's pinball layout, but this time with some of the missing cartoon characters that Bob had to leave out, but still staying within the Atari 7800 palette limitations. Turns out that Bob liked what he saw, and he adapted a slightly modified version of LeGeek's mock-up that included the Red Monster and Baby Pac-Man on top, and Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man on the bottom. Bob's rendering was posted on June 3rd. That same day, Atari Age user Atari Boy 2600 offered to do the label and box art. A couple of days later, Bob said that he found that he had to remove Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man from the bottom of the pinball table due to a lack of necessary room. And in fact, he also had to remove the Red Monster, uh, whom he referred to as Blinky, even though technically in Baby Pac-Man, the monsters don't have names. He had to remove Blinky and Baby Pac-Man from the top of the board. On June 6th, Bob posted the latest playable ROM, but he disclaimed that at that point, all the pinball part of the game did was display the table, and it was still a rough version of the pinball board in which the colors are not yet correct. He was also briefly considering making the pinball board scroll to follow the ball, I guess as it does in Pinball Dreams and Pinball Fantasies. On June 8th, Atari Boy 2600 posted blueprints of two possible labels. They were essentially the same picture. The words Atari 7800 video game cartridge classic style on top with a rectangular bordered picture below it. At the top of that picture was the title Baby Pac-Man and the art featured an airborne Baby Pac-Man apparently chasing dots with the monsters tailing him. Behind the monsters were Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man looking proud, but strangely not the least bit concerned that these four monsters were chasing their baby. There were two different versions of this art, one done in the style of the arcade side art characters, and another done in the style of the Pac-Man cartoon that aired on Saturday mornings in the early 80s. Later that day, Bob posted a screen cap of the latest rendering of the pinball board, this time with the missing characters added back in, sacrificing the on-screen score. The colors still weren't finished, though. Bob was struggling with a couple of lines of garbage that kept showing up, but all clues pointed to it being the mess emulator doing that, because when Bob tested the game on an actual 7800, the lines of garbage were not there. His plan so far was to get the colors finalized, then implement the flippers that Atari Boy 2600 designed on one of his mock-ups. The next work-in-progress ROM was posted on June 14th. The game now auto-detected whether you had a single-button joystick or a two-button pain-line-compatible controller. 
If you were using a single button controller, the control scheme would match that of the 2600 video pinball. Left and right to pop the corresponding flippers, up for both, down to launch the ball, and holding down the fire button and moving the joystick to nudge the table. For the pain line, the left button controlled the left flipper, the right button the right flipper, pull down to launch the ball, and when the ball was in play, moving the joystick in any direction but down would nudge the table. Bob had written the code that updated lights and drop targets, but it still technically was not yet a playable pinball board. So to exit the pinball portion of the game, you'd have to hit either reset or select on the console itself. The next day though, Bob found a problem. If you were on the pinball screen and left it there for about a minute, the game would crash. He found that the crash would only happen on an actual Atari 7800 Pro system, but not in emulation. It turned out it was the routine that he put in that would make the lights light up, a routine that he wouldn't be using in the final product anyway, so no problem, he simply took it out. So later that day, Bob posted a new work-in-progress ROM file with the crash no longer happening. Also, the flippers were functional. The game would now auto-detect one or two button controllers. Uh, not only that, but you could also hot-swap from a Painline-compatible stick to a CX-40-compatible stick, and the auto-detect would still work. But interestingly, you couldn't go the other way around. You couldn't go from a single button to a Painline-compatible. To Bob's chagrin, though, he was unable to show the nudge effect by moving the screen. Instead, he had to show it by moving the ball. Yeah, kind of like video pinball, I guess. On June 16th, Bob posted a screen cap of the pinball board with an actual ball present, although it just sat there. The next day, Defender 2600 posted a slightly tweaked graphic of the top of the pinball table and an example of the pinball animated. Later that day, Bob posted pictures of the 13 arcade mazes, and he indicated he'd do the two-color mazes, that is, the fourth through sixth mazes in which the mazes' islands are one of two possible colors, but that the colors in his 7800 version would not match those of the arcade's mazes due to system limitations. Oh wait, did I say 13? <laughs> Actually, um, it turns out it's 24 maze layout and color combinations before they cycle back to the first. Never fear, though, Bob would implement them all, although he wouldn't be able to replicate the purple color some of the arcade mazes have, but he would get the layout and style down, though. On June 18th, Bob posted that all the mazes had been implemented and the pinball table now had a fruit indicator and a tunnel speed indicator. Ball physics would be the last operative feature implemented because it would be the hardest. He warned that updates would be less frequent because he was about to start a new job after having been unemployed for a time, and he was far from finished. The next day, Atari Boy 2600 posted a potential final design for the cartridge artwork, opting for the arcade-style design rather than the Saturday morning cartoon style. At this point, he just needed to decide what colors to make the monsters, either the colors used in the Baby Pac-Man game, pink, red, green, and blue, or the classic colors of red, pink, orange, and light blue. Bob wanted the first option with the green and darker blue monsters. On June 20th, Atari Boy 2600 posted an updated version of the art with all the colors filled in, and it was absolutely gorgeous. He later posted a version that included shading and lighting. In the meantime, Atari Age user ProScion had offered some help with pinball physics and collision detection, 
and Kurt Wallach chimed in with some thoughts on how the physics can be done, including some diagrams with the rendered pinball table. Cosmic Stardust chimed in with some thoughts as well, and uh, I'm not going to get into the details of that conversation because, well, uh, I mean absolutely no disrespect to anybody involved, but the details would just make for a boring podcast. On June 26th, Bob posted an updated ROM that now included the ability to bump or nudge the table. He warned that at this point, development would be very slow coming. Meanwhile, Kurt Wallach offered some more advice regarding programming the action on the pinball table, complete with sample low-level source code that, uh, as a high-level programmer, I couldn't understand in the slightest. But what I was able to understand was that Bob planned to have three variables for the motion of the pinball, one for velocity across the x-axis, another for the y-axis, and one that would hold one of 32 possible ball directions. Atari Age user Kaitaro, um, K-E-I-T-A-R-O, if I pronounce it wrong, I apologize, but uh, Kaitaro reported that on a PAL system, the background color was a dark red instead of black, and bumping the table resulted in some garbage graphics on the screen, and Bob was able to fix those issues the next day. Unfortunately, though, Bob was ready to throw in the towel on August 23rd, partly because of personal issues, but also because he was having some really frustrating difficulties trying to figure out how to implement the ball movement. As Atari Age user Swami pointed out, it was one thing for Bob to calculate the ball movement in Crazy Bricks and bullet ricocheting in Frenzy, but pinball with the constant speed changes and arc adjustments? That was another thing altogether. Bob was questioning his own intelligence and ability, but Atari Age user Trevor tried to combat those feelings by posting a list of Atari 7800 homebrew and hack projects that Bob completed, and that list consisted of no fewer than 32 items. But after some encouragement and a private conversation with another programmer offering to help, he declared the project to be, well, and I quote, not dead yet. The project carried on with Bob and two other developers. On September 4th, Bob posted that he was finished with all he could do with the project and that he would post the source code in the 7800 programming forum so that others could finish it. But at this point, his latest changes included making sure that in multiplayer games, when switching players, each player's dot completions would be remembered. Also added was returning to the maze after losing a ball. After Kurt took a look at the code and put some work in, he gave Bob some pointers as to where he could resume. On September 13th, Bob posted that the game in progress now included ball launch, gravity, and movement, checking for the ball reaching the left and right borders and reversing and losing momentum as expected, moving the tunnel speed and fruit indicators to the bottom of the screen, special thanks screen replacing the point value screen, and a few other back-end tweaks to free some memory and better organize palette use. Bob posted a screen grab of the special thanks page on September 15th. Despite all those promising changes, no new playable binary was posted. As Kurt explained, no further binaries should be posted unless there was something new to be offered in terms of playability. While these new features were necessary, they didn't really provide much to show. The code was all there, but they still needed to work on getting Kurt's parts and Bob's parts to work together. After working on the code for two weeks, Kurt posted a new binary on October 11th. Something major now in the game. Working flippers. 
the game was still nowhere near being finished because the right half of the pinball playfield was buggy and there were some debugging artifacts left in, albeit intentionally. Defender2600 mentioned that he left 10 pixels of minimum width between the flippers on the assumption that the ball would be 8 pixels wide, but the ball actually ended up being 7 pixels wide. Kurt ended up making the collision map a bit more generous based on this little uh, anomaly, but it turned out it was a bit too forgiving. As an owner of an actual baby Pac-Man arcade machine, Atari Age user I'm Starry-Eyed chimed in with some observations in case Kurt wanted to consider adding some idiosyncrasies in the pinball code. He mentioned that a very common occurrence on the real thing is the ball hitting a blue drop target and subsequently going straight down the center. He said that it happens so much that it's scary. He also observed that the table is so small that the ball moves fast most of the time. Basically, the less room there is for the ball to move, the less of a chance it has to slow down. The physics of the ball on the actual table led I'm Starry-Eyed to come up with a pretty workable flipper strategy. He considered it a spoiler, but I wouldn't go that far. But hey, if you don't want to know this strategy, then turn the volume down on the podcast for about 20 seconds or so. He said, If you hit the ball with the middle part of the flipper, you will hit the center field targets and quite often the blue one, quite often at the highest speed. That blue one will almost always drain down the center, he added, and that it's best to hit that target to the side to reduce chances of losing the ball. The center part of the flipper also apparently helps when aiming for the trapped ball at the top of the table to obtain an additional energizer. I'm starry-eyed pointed out that the flipper's sweet spot is the very end of it. Hit the ball at the tip of the flipper, it will often go into one of the, and I quote, park your ball areas to go back up to the pack escalator once you have earned at least one power pellet. If you hit the ball close to the inner part of the flipper, the ball may slow down a bit and hit a target or sometimes end up in an outer lane to upgrade your tunnel speed or to upgrade your fruit. Having said that, over the next couple of days, some issues came up. Defender2600 pointed out that if you use a flipper to catch the ball and let the ball roll down to the inner end of the flipper to hold it in place, the ball does not stop, but instead it shimmies in place. Atari Age user Slidelman found a much bigger problem, though. When choosing in the configuration screen to play a complete game with both the maze portion and the pinball portion, once you got to the pinball table, you couldn't get out of it. However, it turns out that Kurt just didn't happen to implement the pinball to maze transitions yet, so instead he was focusing on getting the ball physics down. However, on October 17th, he posted a new version of the binary with the jittering pinball issue fixed. The next day, Atari Age users rejoiced as Bob announced that he would return to the project after Kurt's contribution to the pinball physics was complete. Part of what he would do was to fix an issue with the drop targets in the latest binary that Kurt released on October 22nd. Once the drop targets are hit, they didn't come back up. But Kurt's new update makes the ball physics a little more realistic after hitting drop targets and walls behind them. On October 30th, Kurt posted an updated work-in-progress binary that had a minor tweak in the flipper physics. He posted another update the next day, implementing a few more ball physics tweaks and adding routines that could support a few general pinball flipper strategies, demonstrated in a YouTube video that Atari Age user Gorf Cadet shared a week before. Then on November 2nd, Kurt posted what he felt would be his last binary before handing the project back to Bob. In addition to removing a few on-screen debugging indicators, he adjusted some of the bumper behavior and drop target detection. 
Also, there was a way that someone could activate the trap ball at the top of the screen and hit that ball with such force that it could bounce to the other side, rewarding the player with an energizer as expected, but then bouncing back over to the original side, rewarding with a player with an additional energizer. So Kurt adjusted the physics so that when your ball reaches that part of the screen, its speed and momentum are capped. Atari Age users who tried the new binary were stunned at how good the game was and how close it was to the arcade game, including the pinball table's behavior. However, many commented how table nudging seemed to be overly generous, both in how hard the machine gets nudged and how frequently you could bump without tilting. Bob chimed in and said he hadn't yet put in the tilt detection. As for how hard the table appears to be bumped, People pointed out that due to its construction and how heavy the machine is, bumping an actual baby Pac-Man arcade machine will result in much less forceful ball behavior. Fixing this, though, would likely require a complete rewrite of the nudging code, but it would have to wait. On November 6th, Kurt posted from a hospital room that he would be out of commission for a few days while recovering from an electric scooter accident. Somehow, though, he managed to post a fix the next day, having been released from the hospital earlier than he expected. Skipping ahead to November 20th, Bob said that he got the source code back from Kurt and would be spending time looking at the code carefully to understand what Kurt did. He said that updates would be slow coming because of this, but he promised to stick with it until the end. The next day, however, Kurt found a sporadically appearing glitch on the pinball table. Bob posted a brief status update on November 29th, but not an updated binary. He had taken Kurt's source code and added it to his own code, but found that the game would crash as soon as the ball was launched. Two days later, he fixed that problem. Uh, it had to do with memory locations, which, uh, to be honest with you, was about as much as I was able to understand. But he did post a new work-in-progress binary on December 2nd. This update included fixing a bug in which if you had an energizer, ate it, and then cleared a maze, it would appear magically in the next maze. Also included in the update were switching back to the maze when the pinball is drained, implementation of upgraded fruit and tunnel speed, and being awarded an energizer in a specific location of the maze depending on which side you hit the ball at the top of the pinball table. Still to add, included fixing problematic drop target and light behavior, adding spinners and tilt detection, relaunching the ball if it drains without you scoring any points, and adding scoring and sounds to the pinball screens. On December 6th, Bob found a few problems. One was a hard-to-reproduce sprite corruption in the maze, and another dot corruption in the maze when going from the pinball table to the maze. A mistake that Bob realized he made was assuming that all scoring was in the hundreds, leading him to hard-code double zeros in the score, but he had recently learned that hitting a bumper actually gives you 10 points, and a spinner is only 10 points per rotation when the arrow near that spinner isn't lit. Uh, sorry, I forgot to mention that earlier. Uh, however, for the time being, bumpers and spinners would just be 100 points. On December 13th, Bob said that with Atari Age user Rev Eng's help, that is, Mike Sarna, or is it Rev Eng? Sorry, Mike. Uh, uh, but uh, you may remember him being the developer behind the amazing homebrew time salvo. Uh, he was able to fix that first glitch. Uh, it was because of some commented source code he forgot to uncomment. 
The next day, Bob posted a work-in-progress binary that now implemented scoring on the pinball table. Many of the lights on the pinball table were lighting up as necessary, earning an extra life in pinball, and a few more bug fixes. Two days later, Kurt posted that he actually lost a life when attempting to eat a blue monster in the tunnel when his tunnel speed was at level 4. Bob was able to reproduce that bug and then fix it. I'm assuming that the bug fix went into the next work in progress that was posted on December 17th. In that version, all the lights on the pinball board were working, as were energizers. Also, drop targets were now working as expected, and the Paxcalator was added, uh, albeit not with a random color. That feature would be added later. Bob realized, though, that uh, he had yet to test two-player mode, and he remarked that uh, now he was kind of afraid to. But on the next day, Bob said that he addressed the random colors of the Paxcalator, and he implemented a feature that gives you up to three tries in pinball if you don't score any points before you lose a ball. Uh, on the arcade version, there's a dip switch that allows you to choose between three tries or unlimited tries, though. One thing Bob found that he couldn't bring over from the arcade game was the on-screen notification saying, You have won a free baby! Because, well, the character table was full. He asked if everybody would be okay with something simpler, like just bonus player or something like that. The next work-in-progress binary was posted on Boxing Day. In addition to the new features that I already mentioned, changes included tweaked joystick response for better precision, uh, and there was also some improvement on the collision detection in the tunnel. Also, you get an extra life after clearing three mazes. The next day, Bob posted about how he had now implemented tilting. If you nudged the board 16 times within a short period of time, it would register as a tilt. On New Year's Day 2019, Bob posted an updated binary. This time, the controls were tweaked again after it was found that his previous tweak actually made the controls a bit worse. Atari Age user Trevor confirmed that the new binary's control tweak was a noticeable improvement. Tilt functionality was now in the game, as was an artificial intelligence enhancement in the so-called classic monster behavior to randomize the movement slightly so that people couldn't devise repeatable patterns. Sounds would come later, as was Bob's usual habit when uh, developing a homebrew, and that sound programming would be pretty complicated given all the different sounds that a baby Pac-Man machine makes. I'm starry-eyed offered to assist by submitting recordings from his actual arcade cabinet. Bob respectfully declined that offer, though, because he could just use the PinMame emulator and get all the sounds that way simply by entering certain key combinations. On January 8th, he then posted a video of his latest version. He posted another video on January 13th, and this time with all the sounds present except for the flipper sounds. According to Bob, at this point he was in the home stretch. Being very close to finishing, the game still needed to implement a pinball-only option and a few other tweaks in the code. And sure enough, the next day, Bob announced his changes were done and that the game was complete, barring any bugs found, of course, but with the pinball option removed. Due to popular demand, he later put that option back in. However, he said he would not be posting the final version of the ROM or any other games he worked on in the future anymore. If you wanted a copy of the completed Baby Pac-Man, you would have to get the cartridge. Well, he adapted this policy because he was sick of seeing homebrews being made into cartridges and sold on eBay without his authorization. And he was equally sick of people altering his games and attempting to sell cartridge versions of those altered games and claiming credit. 
To make dumping the ROM code from the cartridge difficult, he would use custom bank switching routines. Atari Age user CPU Wiz said he may make cartridge boards that would have anti-piracy features. Also, on the same day, Bob posted a picture of a baby Pac-Man cartridge complete with labels. The front label used Atari Boy 2600's art based on the arcade cabinet's side art. Defender 2600 offered a minor graphical change on the pinball board to provide a smoother dithering effect, which Bob did implement. Unfortunately, though, Bob's decision to not release the final binary as a downloadable ROM struck a nerve with Kurt, who argued that releasing the game only as a cartridge would deprive those who cannot play the game off a cartridge. Uh, That is, those who don't actually have an Atari 7800. He voiced his disapproval in a long rant and claimed that he would never work on someone else's project again. Bob's response to that rant was to post the final ROM after all, but also taking under serious consideration never doing another game, at least publicly, and at least not with another person. If he couldn't do it all by himself, he wouldn't do it at all. Not surprisingly, this exchange resulted in, well, a lot of online drama on Atari Age, culminating with an apology from Kurt, who put some of the blame on his autism and said he wasn't aware of how seriously Bob took his work and how seriously the rest of the Atari Age 7800 community takes Bob. And Bob likewise apologized to Kurt and clarified his intentions of not wanting to release the final version as a downloadable file, and he also didn't want to make it look like he meant that Kurt had no say in it. He assured Kurt that he was thankful for all of his contributions, and he didn't want Kurt to think that uh, any of his frustration during the project was a result of anything Kurt said. On a personal opinion note, I was glad to see both of them resolving their differences and uh, overall be nice to each other, so that was really cool. Uh, Regarding the issue that sparked this all, by the way, Cosmic Stardust brought up the idea of having purchasable downloads in the Atari Age store, to which Albert replied that he intended to do just that when a new version of the store software was available, but not until the forum was upgraded. Um, spoiler alert, uh, since I uh, prepared my notes, the forum has since been upgraded. But let's move on to January 20th. Uh, Bob said he fixed a few bugs that he found, uh, one of which was a speed problem when the monsters were in the tunnel. Also, the center arrows on the pinball board could no longer be advanced once you maxed out your tunnel speed and fruit upgrades, and this was now fixed. He also fixed some issues with the drop targets in pinball-only mode. There were still two minor graphical issues he was unable to fix at this time. Also that day, uh, Atari Age user TrekMD, longtime listener of this podcast, uh, he found that when playing the game via the Pro System emulator, Baby Pac-Man could get stuck in the monster's pen in the middle of the maze. However, Bob wasn't able to replicate that particular issue, which indicated that it might be specific to just the Pro System emulator. By the time he released a new revision of the playable binary later that same day, he was still unable to make that problem happen. The new version fixed a transition issue going from pinball mode to maze mode and back. Also, one feature that was unique to the Baby Pac-Man arcade game uh, that is not present in any of the other games in the Pac-Man series was that you could abort the opening tune and start the gameplay just by moving the joystick. And I never knew about that until I read this development thread. And anyway, the new revision of the 7800 ROM now had the feature added. Bob also implemented a change in the flipper sound as suggested by Kurt. Over the next few days, Bob tried to reproduce TrekMD's findings, especially because it happened in another emulator. 
It was hard to replicate, but the fact that two emulators now exhibited that behavior was enough cause for concern. On January 23rd, though, he believed he found what was causing it to happen and implemented a fix. He posted a video in which he scored a million points, with the promise of an updated binary to be posted later. Sure enough, the next day Bob posted that binary, which was, at this point, called Release Candidate Number 8. A day later, Bob said there were two features he was going to try to implement, but didn't want to say what those features were, in the event he might not have been able to add them. He also had a bit of dilemma. What colors should the dots be? If he made them white, because of the way the colors would display with the palettes he'd been using, white would have to be paired with another color, making the dots appear to be elongated. The other option would have been to make the dots the color of either the maze's outside wall or the maze's inner walls. After some input from other Atari Age users, Bob decided on white plus another color. Defender 2600 said that a possible compromise would be to make the dots small but still too colored, with the second color acting as a shadow. Bob found that because of system limitations, the only way to implement that solution would be to offset the dots by a pixel from the center, which he didn't want to do. But then he tried it and found that the offset didn't really have a major effect on how they appeared. Meanwhile, Atari Age user Baby Blue Azure found that the on-screen score could accommodate scores in the billions. Given that it took Bob 20 minutes to reach a million, and of course the difficulty of the game, people were wondering how in the world Baby Blue Azure was scoring that high, and how long it took to reach that billion. Bob actually had an explanation for that. Baby Blue Azure likes to test works in progress by hacking them with invincibility cheats. Bob added that his million point score was an anomaly. He usually doesn't score that well on either his own conversion of Baby Pac-Man or the arcade machine. And by the way, it took Baby Blue Azure about 40 minutes to reach a billion points, not just with an invincibility cheat, but also by hacking the binary so that the maze portion would play by itself and altered the point values on some items. So yeah, even with that, it still took that long. On January 30th, Bob said he'd be working on the manual next, and the following day he posted what might be the final release candidate with the smaller dots, tweaked energizer dithering, and a few other minor changes. But Kurt found a small difference between the arcade game and Bob's version regarding how the rollovers worked. Bob fixed that inconsistency and then posted release candidate 10 later that day. After a few days' silence, February 4th saw a new posting from Bob, this time release candidate 11. And this release featured the bumper and spinner scoring set to 10 points, uh, 100 points when their corresponding arrows are lit, of course, uh, an extra life at 10 million points. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I've ever, I don't think I'm ever going to see that extra life myself. <laughs> and uh, it also had the remember the energizers option functional. Bob also posted a PDF of the first draft of the manual, and the next day he posted a revision version, taking corrections from both other Atari Age users and himself. Release Candidate 12 was posted on the 7th. It corrected a problem with tunnel behavior that was giving Bob some trouble, and there was also a small graphical fix made. The post also included a new version of the manual, and later that day, another binary was posted that fixed an issue in which the Paxcalator crashed the game. The next day, he posted Release Candidate 13, which involved a slight change to some of the timing with the tunnels. 
On February 16th, Bob posted pictures of Mark Oberhäuser's box artwork. Then on March 12th, Bob posted a picture of the box, manual, and cartridge, as he now had his own copy of each. He was thinking of making a 3D printing of a pink cartridge, but then he nixed that idea, at least temporarily, after he realized that he had problems with his 3D printer. Having said that, he did revisit the idea on the 23rd with the arrival of a new 3D printer, and Bob posted a picture of five cartridge shells that he printed, red, light blue, marble, and two pink ones. The pinks and light blue were exclusively for baby Pac-Man, and it would be determined later what the rest would be used for. Whatever the case, Bob mentioned that it takes 13 hours for his printer to pop out two shells. On April 14th, Bob said he was hoping to be able to print cartridge shells in pink, light blue, silver, clear... Okay, so clear technically is not a color, it just means transparent, but uh, let's just call it colorless. Uh, you, you know what I mean. Uh, the other colors were glow-in-the-dark green and glow-in-the-dark blue. The silver one was to be an homage to the pinball part of the game, and he would only make that for himself. Bob also wanted to make a wood-colored cartridge shell, which would have been PLA plastic with actual wood chips embedded, but he found that the labels refused to adhere to that material. But while he was at it, he thought about the possibility of using two-color mode on the 3D printer and have his personal Pac-Man Plus logo embossed in the cart shell in a different color. His post included pictures of the glow-in-the-dark blue shell. However, in the end, he found that the 3D printed shells were problematic in several ways and would just not be a viable way to house the circuit boards, and he said that he'd just have to wait until Atari Age stocked the game. Bob wasn't truly ready to give up on those printed cartridge shells. He found that the PLA filaments he used would absorb moisture, and that the filaments had been opened unused for too long before they were finally fed through the printer. That, plus their tendency to collect dust, didn't help. Bob did eventually get a successful printout of a shell, a gray shell with a yellow Pac-Man Plus label, on April 17th, and he would try a few more with different filaments just to make sure he'd get consistent results. On April 23rd, Bob posted a picture of white, blue, and red cartridge shells with a yellow Pac-Man Plus logo, and he loved the result. What helped was he bought a commercial program called Simply 3D, which had a good driver for his Creality CRX 3D printer. Later, though, Bob said he was not going to accept requests for shells of different colors, but instead just print 20 good, acceptable shells of various colors, let people choose from those 20, and be done with it. These 20 would go first come, first serve, based on the non-private responses to the development thread, most likely at his usual asking price of $35 plus postage. Bob reminded people that it takes a whole day to print an entire shell. By May 3rd, he only had six ready to go. Because of that, by May 3rd, he only had six shells ready to go. By May 22nd, Bob was just about finished printing the shells and would be asking 30 bucks each for black, 35 each for the other colors, plus $4 shipping. The late Drac is Back actually got the only shell that was printed in sparkly red, leaving 19 for others, plus two plain black shells. On the 25th, Bob posted pictures of the cartridges that were printed, one pink and two each of standard black, cyan, red, light green, glow-in-the-dark blue, glow-in-the-dark and black, blue, shiny gold, gray, and partial translucent and black. 
He started taking payments on the 30th. Over the next several days, of course, Atari Age users posted pictures and videos of their baby Pac-Man carts. And I have to mention this just to uh, kind of embarrass Bob, if you will, just to demonstrate what a great guy he is. Uh, Andromeda Stardust mentioned that she would really have loved to have gotten one of the -the glow-in-the-dark cartridge shells, but they were already claimed, only to find that when her copy arrived, it was a glow-in-the-dark shell that Bob made for himself. Yep, he gave up his own. This is not the first time I've heard of Bob being so generous, by the way. Later on, she added an LED to the cartridge, and while she was at it, used metallic purple nail polish to reinforce the EEPROM. Another post was from IES Posta, who hacked a board with red, blue, and green lights into his baby Pac-Man cartridge. I'll post a link to his comment in the show notes. It is truly a sight to behold. All of the cartridge boards had been accounted for by July 1st, meaning that the next round of cartridge sales to the general public would be Baby Pac-Man's debut in the Atari Age store after Portland Retro Gaming Expo in October, making his first appearance at PRGE Bob himself. Baby Pac-Man was released in the Atari Age store on December 8th for $50, and that package includes the game cartridge, the manual, and the box. Several buyers noted that the spine on the box is printed upside down in relation to the spines on most other Atari game boxes, meaning that those who store their boxes in a bookcase either have to turn the box upside down for consistency or let their baby Pac-Man boxes stand out with the text oriented the other way. Albert said that a later printing of the box would fix that issue. Now, that's all I'm going to say about the development of baby Pac-Man and the history of how it was made, how it was released, because God knows that was a lot. That was a mouthful, wasn't it? So let's talk about the game itself and how it plays on the Atari 7800. So you put the baby Pac-Man cartridge into your pro system, you fire up the console, and of course, as usual, you get that little Atari logo animation. And after that, you see an animation of baby Pac-Man playing with a yo-yo, just like in the arcade game. I think I mentioned that before. (laughs) Then there's a uh, thank you screen acknowledging all who participated in the development and the testing of baby Pac-Man, followed by some on-screen instructions, two pages worth, I believe. At this point, if you move the joystick or press a fire button or hit the select button on the console, you're brought to the game's menu. And from there, you can choose one or two players. It defaults to one, of course. You can choose between three and five lives inclusive, and the default is three. And there's a Remember Energizers option that I believe I mentioned earlier, and it defaults to yes. And what that means is if you set Remember Energizers to yes, then if you lose a life when you have one or more Energizers on the screen, those Energizers will still be there when your next life starts up. Otherwise, the Energizers go away if you lose a life. There's a play type setting that gives you three options. There's full game, which is the default, and then there's vid only, which means you're just playing the maze, no pinball, and there's pin only, which is the exact opposite. You're playing just the pinball table, not the maze. There's a monster AI or artificial intelligence setting, and the default is arcade, and you can switch it to classic. Uh, Arcade means the baby Pac-Man arcade game behavior meaning that the monsters go in those really weird patterns. Well, not really patterns, but the really weird 
behavior that's hard to predict. You can choose classic for AI, which means that the monsters all behave like they do in Pac-Man, Ms. Pac-Man, Pac-Man Plus, Super Pac-Man, and Junior Pac-Man. When you're on the option screen, you press the fire button on your controller or the reset on the console to start the game. As you would expect, the joystick controls the direction of Baby Pac-Man during that maze part of the game. And on the pinball board, there are two different control schemes. I'll talk about the uh, two-button control scheme first. Uh, this is assuming that you have a Pro-Line, Pain-Line compatible joystick. And uh, the game auto-detects that, by the way. It can tell whether or not you have a Pain-Line compatible stick or not. Uh, it's a really cool feature. You don't have to do any settings, any adjustments, or anything like that. If you have a two-button controller, then the button on the left controls the left flipper, the button on the right controls the right flipper, and moving the joystick will bump the pinball table in the direction you move the joystick. If you happen to be using one of Ed Ladin's ambidextrous single-player controllers, such as the AllPlay 4.8, by the way, the outer buttons control the right flipper, and the inner buttons control the left flipper. If you're playing with a single-button controller, such as the classic CX-40, then the pinball controls mirror that of the Atari 2600 video pinball control scheme. Left moves the left flipper, right moves the right flipper, up moves both flippers, and to bump the table, you hold the fire button down and you move the joystick, either left, right, or up. And depending on where you move the joystick, that's the direction the table gets bumped. No matter what type of controller you use, you launch the ball by pulling down on the joystick. And from there on, it's Baby Pac-Man. And what's really cool, uh, I, I gotta confess, I don't know for sure if this is true of the arcade version, but at least on the 7800 version, if you're like me and you don't like waiting for stuff, you can interrupt the opening theme music by moving the joystick in any direction and start the game right away. And you can also do that between lives. Like, if you lose a life, you don't have to wait those three or four seconds for your next life to generate. You can just start right away if you want just by moving the joystick. So that's a cool little feature. Now, I've found Baby Pac-Man to be a very hard game. Uh, for one thing, the pinball table is really difficult, especially because the uh, flippers are so far apart. And it's really hard to calculate when you should flip the ball to control it and get it up to the drop targets you want and get to the little uh, curved cage where the extra ball is that uh, flips back and forth. And the maze, oh, the maze is a real challenge too, but I think I found a good way to deal with the maze. Uh, not just with Baby Pac-Man, but all the other Pac-Man games, a big, big important thing to do is to group the monsters, which I cannot do to save my own life on Pac-Man, Junior Pac-Man, Super Pac-Man, Pac-Man Plus, and Ms. Pac-Man. However, I have found that... In Baby Pac-Man, the key thing is to get the monsters into the tunnel, which is surprisingly pretty easy. Get them to follow you into the tunnel. Usually they don't go in the very first time you go in, but they kind of uh, hover around, make maybe a lap around one of the islands, and then they go in. And when they're in the tunnel, even if just two of them are in the tunnel, it frees you up to gobble up some dots in the maze. And if you can get all four of them, then go to the most dangerous part of the maze and eat as much as you can while they're still in the tunnel. 
Uh, I think I said earlier that the monsters don't slow down in the tunnel. Uh, that was a lie. They do. <laughs> um, but that was my strategy. I've found that I can actually clear about 99% of the maze on the first level just by doing that, just by luring the monsters into the tunnel. And then once I get out of the tunnel, I just eat whatever I can and then start all over again, try to group them together into the tunnel. And then when I have just a few dots left, that's when I go into the pinball game and try to uh, earn myself some energizers or upgraded fruits. So try that. That strategy, though, doesn't really work that well for me once I upgrade my tunnel speed. Because the thing is, when your tunnel speed isn't upgraded, you can just stay inside the tunnel and just jiggle the controller back and forth until the monsters go into the tunnel. And please make sure you get at least two monsters in the tunnel. Because if you're in the tunnel with just one monster, that significantly increases the chance that there's going to be another monster at the other end of the tunnel waiting to cut you off. Found that out too many times, but really use that tunnel. Use the tunnel. That is a huge, huge strategy move. And having said all that, let's find out what uh, some baby Pac-Man players have to say about Bob and Kurt's masterpiece. I asked for feedback for this episode for Baby Pac-Man, and not surprising at all, many people came through for me. So, starting with Atari Age, David Calgary 29 says, Baby Pac-Man on the 7800 is awesome. I have to say the arcade unit is just too damn hard for me to play, as it appeared to be for lots of casual gamers at PRGE. I was watching a group of players going at it, and they all kept asking, how do you play it? I'm really bad at the arcade game, but none of those players got past the first level. I also couldn't get a handle on the arcade controls. The flippers seemed to be kind of weak, and I couldn't get the ball moving very fast. Is this common? Then again, I played it Saturday night, and it probably had tons of use before that. Well, I don't know. That's a good question. Is it common? I do know that baby Pac-Man arcade machines have a lot of problems with that. First of the problems, of course, is that it's a pinball machine, which means lots of moving parts. Pinball machines are very difficult and expensive to maintain. It might just simply be the nature of the beast, but Baby Pac-Man in particular has a pretty bad reputation in terms of reliability, so it might might have just been the machine itself. Uh, might not have had anything to do with the use that it got over that weekend. S. Ramirez 2008 says, Baby Pac-Man is great. The game retains the hard level of difficulty that the coin-op is known for, and it plays exceptionally well. The pinball physics are truly amazing, and the transitions between maze and pinball are smooth and provide a bit of a breather if needed. The key to Baby Pac-Man is the pinball portion of the game. You'll need to practice playing this portion, as pinball is the way you'll achieve your high scores. Thanks to everyone involved for making 7800 Baby Pac-Man a must-own game. Note, you haven't seen anyone play Baby Pac-Man until you've seen the man himself, Bob DiCrescenzo, play this game. What a treat. I almost had a chance to watch him play the coin-op, too, but it was being played by two gentlemen, and Bob needed to get back to the PRGE Atari Age booth. It was really cool you got to see Bob in person play this. I've yet to meet Bob. I, w I came this close to meeting him at Midwest Gaming Classic, but he had to cancel his trip, unfortunately. And hopefully someday before too long. Uh, I'm really hoping I can get out to Portland Retro Gaming Expo next year. 
let's see, Cafe Man says, it really is awesome. I can't believe not only the maze gameplay, but the beautiful pinball gameplay as well. The most interesting new game of PRGE to me. Kudos, Pac-Man Plus. Has anybody ever been disappointed by a Pac-Man Plus game? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, Lord Thag says, it's a great port. Played it all day Sunday after picking up a copy at PRGE. What's impressive is how similarly it plays to the arcade. The pinball physics are quite close to how the game actually plays on a real machine. It's hard as hell, too. Pretty much the only classic-style Pac-Man game the 7800 doesn't have now is Pac-N-Pal. Thanks, Bob. Toiletune says, Baby Pac-Man is a dream come true for 7800 lovers, pinball enthusiasts, and Pac-Man fanatics. The arcade game was one of those quirky early 80s titles. Some people loved it, others didn't get it. The 7800 port has several advantages. You can change the enemy AI, it requires far less maintenance and upkeep, and you get to keep your quarters. Sound is good with no pokey required. If you already own Pac-Man collection and want more, check it out. Yeah, I totally agree with you there, Toilet Tunes. Yeah, I mean, really, Pac-Man Collection and Baby Pac-Man. That, that We have that for the 7800. It is a wonderful time to be a 7800 owner. Wow. Gambler172 says, In the arcade halls, I hated Baby Pac. Much too heavy to play, and it ate my money too fast. But the 7800 conversion is my game of the year. It does not eat my money, smiley face, and plays very well. It's a really great effort to combine a pinball machine and an arcade video game for the 7800. Only suggestion, I want a teddy bear difficulty, because <laughs> the game is heavy like the arcade game. I think he means difficult there, so thanks, Gambler172. This is the most I've ever seen Gambler172 say in one post. Thank you so much, Gambler172. It just shows you the power of the game that it got him to say more than just a couple of short sentences. And Jimmy G, my Pie Factory podcast co-host, says, I wasn't a huge fan of this in the arcade way back when, but I've grown to appreciate it more lately. I love it on the 7800. It fills a sorely unfilled niche on the 7800, that being no pinball game for the console. Bob and Kurt and everyone on the dev team did an outstanding job. Yeah, yeah, that is true. The only other way you could play pinball in the 7800 is by playing the Atari 2600 Video Pinball or Midnight Magic. I think those are the only two uh, pinball machine games made for the 2600. I could be wrong about that, but I think those are the only two. And I will argue that Jinx is kind of a pinball game, but I know a lot of people don't like it, but I'm sure that if it had paddle support, people would love it. And I heard from Eugenio, who says, Hello, Sean. Well, hello, Eugenio. He says, I hope things are going well and that you're safe from Corona. I originally wrote this feedback email after returning from PRGE 2019, which was excellent, but where there were plenty of new homebrew games released for all the Atari consoles, one of these titles is the game being covered in today's episode of your podcast. Bob DiCrescenzo has created a title for the system that is now pretty much an exclusive home port for the Atari 7800, Baby Pac-Man. When I first saw Baby Pac-Man in the arcades, I was immediately attracted to it because it combined two things I liked a lot, Pac-Man and a pinball table. I remember spending quite a few quarters on it because this was not an easy game to master. The ghosts were very fast, smart, and relentless in their pursuit of Baby Pac-Man, and not having power pills to be able to chase them made it even harder. Of course, one could get those when playing the pinball table, but I rarely lasted enough on the pinball table to get any. 
Needless to say, I always wanted to see a home version of the game, but knew it would not be an easy task given the properties of the game. Imagine how pleasantly surprised I was when Bob announced he was making the game for the 7800. I would finally be able to play the game at home. There were challenges during the development of the game, but after some teamwork between Bob and other members of Atari Age, the game became a reality, and what a port this is. Not only does the game capture the mazes perfectly, but the recreation of the pinball table is truly amazing. Gameplay on the mazes is as hectic as in the arcade. The ghosts, <coughs> monsters, are relentless and fast, just as in the arcade. They turn around in a snap, and they are very hard to predict in their behavior. The pinball table replicates the physics of the real table pretty well, and can be just as difficult. With enough practice, though, I've gotten better, and I can now get energizers so I can chase after the ghosts, <coughs> monsters, in the mazes. But recreating the arcade wasn't enough. Bob added a menu in which the player can choose the number of players, the number of lives, the AI for the ghosts, <coughs> that's uh, monsters, <coughs> hey, sorry, I'm, I have to be like that, and the choice of playing pinball only or both. There is also a beautifully animated title screen reminiscent of that of the arcade. Despite the game only using the Tia chip, the sound effects from the arcade are pretty well recreated. Baby Pac-Man is a superb port on the 7800, and one I recommend highly. We do have a mystery to solve about the game, though. Is Baby Pac-Man a younger Junior Pac-Man and a boy, or is Baby Pac-Man Junior's sister? Going to the final frontier gaming, Eugenio, thank you so much, Eugenio. So far, I think I'm safe from Corona. For all you know, I might have it. I might be asymptomatic, but uh, I've been dutifully wearing a mask when I'm in public places and when I can't stay less than six feet away from somebody I don't live with. So I hope I'm okay. I know one of my coworkers had it. She's better now, thankfully, but uh, I've been working from home for, I think I mentioned that earlier, but I've been working from home for the past, wow, three and a half months, but I'm okay and I hope you continue to be okay and I hope your patients are okay too. I did not remember that about the... Well, the thing is, when I first saw Baby Pac-Man in the arcade, I was nine years old, and I didn't really... Uh, because I didn't really spend a lot of time at the arcades, I didn't really notice how much different the gameplay was from the rest of the Pac-Man games. So I think it was 2011 when I saw Baby Pac-Man at Yestercades in Red Bank, New Jersey. And when I played it, I was just stunned at how crazy it was and about how the monsters looked weird and their artificial intelligence was so jittery and just, I, it was so hard to play. It was so hard to play. I both hated it and loved it at the same time. I hated it because the maze was such a challenge, but I loved it because also, it was such a challenge. <laughs> I don't know quite how to explain that, but that's how it was to me. And as for what gender baby Pac-Man is, oh goodness, don't let me go into that rabbit hole again. Please don't bring that up. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, the game only using the Tia chip, uh, it doesn't need any better. It's really good the way it is, as far as I'm concerned. And Eugenio, thank you so much for your feedback. And thank you, everybody, who submitted feedback. 
If you still have comments about baby Pac-Man and uh, you didn't submit them before, go ahead and submit them anyway. Homebrew78 at fab4it.com or hit me up on the social media and uh, I'll address that in a later episode. Now, all this stuff that I talked about, just think about it. That was almost seven full years of what developers often call cradle to grave. First conceived in the beginning of 2013, released at the end of 2019. That's a long time, especially for classic video games. If you had any of the Atari consoles or computers when they were first released, think about how much changed seven years later, especially the Atari 7800. Even if you were one of the lucky few who had one in 1984, by the time 1991 happened, you probably didn't think much of your 7800, what with the 16-bit consoles like the Sega Genesis and the SNES on the market. On uh, January 26, 2020, Kurt posted a few tips on how to improve your score in both the maze part and the pinball part in response to people lamenting how difficult the game is. For one thing, Kurt emphasized hitting the, and I quote, green holes on the table to upgrade your fruit and tunnel speed. Also, saving energizers as much as possible is important. It definitely is. If you're getting tailed by a monster, taking corners will help because baby Pac-Man can traverse the corners faster than the monsters can. I think that's one of the behaviors that's common with uh, the other Pac-Man maze games too. Uh, there are more tips than this, but I will link uh, Kurt's post in the show notes. As for me personally, I'm. it's just stunning. It's absolutely stunning what Bob and Kurt were able to do. Cram a video game pinball hybrid onto the Atari 7800. Uh, man, I would love to see somebody do that with Granny and the Gators, too, although I don't know how possible that would be, given the game mechanics and the controlling of the uh, the characters, but that would be amazing. <laughs> uh, I know a lot of people don't like that game, but I, I do. I like it. I, I like Granny and the Gators, but uh, I remember the first time I played Baby Pac-Man, it was still a work in progress uh, when, uh, I think it was uh, Jim, my co-host on Pie Factory Podcast, told me, play it now. So I loaded it up on my Mateos cart and I almost fell out of my chair when I saw what I saw. It was just freaking amazing. And I don't know why I almost fell out of my chair. I should not have been the least bit surprised. For me personally, what makes the game even better is that I have an Ed Ladin Supreme 78 All Play 4.8. Uh, that's the uh, ambidextrous uh, joystick that Ed Ladin makes and underneath it has the uh, four-way, eight-way ring. What is cool about that is that you can actually use, uh, in the pinball portion of Baby Pac-Man, you can use one button on the left side, another on the right side, to even more simulate the arcade game, because the arcade game, of course, it had the flipper buttons on the sides, but it also had flipper buttons on the main control panel next to the joystick, so you can kind of simulate it that way with, uh, one of Ed Ladin's uh, ambidextrous joysticks, and I, that was just so cool to do that. So, uh, other than that, I don't know what else to say other than Bob once again hit it out of the ballpark, as did Kurt. And my hat, it, well, if I wore a hat, it would be off to <laughs> Bob and Kurt. Congratulations, guys. You did an absolute masterpiece. And uh, I'm especially thankful because I have a blue cart myself. Uh, that I got from a personal transaction from, from Bob. So I'm really happy to have that. It looks really, really cool. 
And what else can I say other than that I look forward to more homebrews? Uh, there will be a lot more coming uh, in the future from what I can tell. I know there's an Arkanoid homebrew in the works, and the most recent thing that I saw that, uh, wow, Bob is redoing Pac-Man Collection specifically for the Atari XM. I mean, it'll still work without the XM, but for the sounds and things, if you have not seen this yet, oh my goodness, you need to check it out. I will link videos in the show notes. It is just absolutely stunning. Stunning. And I so can't wait for that. I know that some of the developer XMs have already shipped out, and uh, man, I so can't wait to have both that and any future XM-specific games. It's going to be amazing. And my personal opinion, and if you disagree with me, fine, that's fine. But my personal opinion is, once I get that XM, it will have been worth the wait. It absolutely will. And that's going to end episode 50 of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. And hopefully it will not continue to be an annual podcast. Hopefully there will be some more episodes in the Well, I know there will be more episodes in the future. But hopefully they won't be a year away. Uh, I apologize, everybody. It's just the way it is, the way it is. Uh, and thank you for listening. I thank everybody involved in this game. Uh, thank you to all those who tested Baby Pac-Man, who developed Baby Pac-Man, and basically everybody who made it possible. Coming up next, episode 51. Well, there is a new homebrew due out for release in the Atari Age store this summer called Dragon's Cash, or is it Cachet? Hmm. Well, whatever the case, hopefully that's going to be next, and hopefully that won't be an entire year from now. Oh, well. Uh, if you enjoy listening to me, uh, there's still Pie Factory Podcast that comes out every three weeks, and you could go to piefactorypodcast.com for more details uh, about that. And, um, there's also autobiography of a schnook. That's my podcast that I put out uh, at least once a month. It's about, well, me. <laughs> yeah. What a wonderful idea for a podcast, a podcast about me, somebody that nobody knows some, just some schnook, right? Uh, you can go to schnookpodcast.com and schnook is spelled S C H N O O K. And uh, in the meantime, you can reach out to me at homebrew78 at fab4it.com. And fab4it is spelled F-A-B, and then the number four, and then I-T. And you can hit me up on Facebook and on the social media at, uh, oh man, I, it's been so long. I don't even remember my Twitter handle for uh, the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. Let me see if I can uh, uh, look it up really quickly. Homebrew78. Huh, there we go. Thanks again for listening and um, enjoy these homebrews and always, always support these homebrew developers. Give them the support they deserve. <laughs> <laughs>